I want to welcome you to our fourth sermon in our sermon series on the book of Acts. It's called Dispatches from the Apostolic Church. And so for the last several weeks, we've been peering through the window of the first century church to look at who they were so that we can better understand who we are, what we're called to be, and the gospel we're called to preach, and the community we're called to build. So Corey, a few weeks ago, preached about that first day of Pentecost. Remember that? When the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, and, and he preached this great gospel, and uh, 3,000 people were converted and came to Jesus Christ and were baptized. And not only that, but they began to meet together as the church in large settings like this in the temple precinct for community worship. And then in smaller settings, in their homes, they met with glad and sincere hearts, the Acts says. And so they met together to hear the apostles' teaching, which is what we're doing right now, for the breaking of bread, which we do in life groups as we fellowship over a meal. But also the breaking of bread probably refers to the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. So they're hearing God's word, they're taking communion together, they're praying the prayers together just like what we just did. And then they're loving one another. They had such compassion that Acts, Luke and Acts says, as any had need, they were willing to care for one another, the widows, the orphan, the outcast. You know, that's an idyllic view of the early church, isn't it? It seems to be so perfect. I'm sure some people were tempted to just bask in the glory of the early church, to gather for worship and to meet together and create a holy society that never has to engage that dark culture outside the church. But that wasn't God's plan, was it? Not at all. A perfect, personal, private faith lived in the relative security of people who think like me and act like me and believe like me. That was not God's plan at all, was it? In fact, God's plan was to commission us. Remember Acts 1.8? Jesus said, lo, I'm sending you out as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, even to those nasty Samaritans. Take the gospel there too, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus says. As Will Williman and Stanley Hauerwas put in a book written over 25 years ago called Resident Aliens, I was able to, to know both of those fine men. He says that the church, rightly um, considered, is a colony of folks always on the move, always going out and colonizing others and bringing them into the colony of faith. He said, just ask any military man. He said, an army succeeds not through trench warfare, not in building trenches and staying together, but through movement, penetration, tactics, and engagement. The colony of God, always on the move, penetrating the culture, taking the gospel out. We're on a mission, folks. I know some of you say, well, we live in the Bible Belt. Most of my neighbors are already Christian. My co-workers know Jesus. They've already got a church. It may be true. I doubt it. It may be true. But let me tell you, this culture is changing. People are coming to the Charleston area from all sorts of cultural centers and they're bringing with them all sorts of philosophies and ideas about God. And some of them have no idea about God at all. They're atheists. So we need to be critical of our methods. How do we engage the culture? 
you know, just going out there and saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that doesn't work anymore. We've got to be more creative. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 17 today. If you've got it in your Bible, your phone, wherever, please turn there with me. We're going to look at Paul's method of motivation and manner of engagement. We're going to look at the greatness of the God that Paul brings to them. And finally, the sign and symbol of God's victory in the world, that all that he says is true. So chapter 17, verse 17. Uh, Here it is. Paul follows this typical pattern. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and many devout persons. Now those would be proselytes, Gentile folks who have become Jews. So he's wrestling with them, reasoning with them about Jesus. And it says he reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now here's the point. It's one thing to engage your brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith. That's what Peter did on the first day of Pentecost. He said, here is Joel, here's what the prophets say, I can logically deduce that Jesus is the Savior of the world because we know the prophets and the God of those prophecies. You can't do that with pagans, can you? What happens if you don't enjoy a framework for belief in the same God? Well, that's where Paul is today. How do you preach to an unbelieving world without that framework? Paul is in the marketplace, Luke says. You know, we might think of marketplace as maybe Walmart market. Uh, you, you go there and you got this crazy preacher out front preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or, or maybe you go to New York and you're in Manhattan and, and there's this guy with a megaphone outside of Macy's. Turn or burn, he says. Well, that's not what we're talking about today. This is different. Paul is entering into the marketplace of ideas, okay? This is the agora. This is the cultural center of Paul's day. He is in Athens, okay? And in Athens, you had the brightest minds the ancient world knew at that time. So how do you get the news in that world? You didn't have CNN. uh, You didn't have Fox News. How do you know the latest intellectual trends and what people are really thinking? Well, you went to the Agora, to the marketplace. It was the media center for that day. Uh, It was their financial center. It was the center for culture and arts. It was the center for philosophical and religious debate. It was where you came to know. So Paul's there in Athens, among the best and the brightest and the most intellectual thinkers of his age. And what does Paul do? He engages the culture at the Agora. What was Paul's motivation for that cultural engagement? Look at verse 16. Now, look at this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Paul's spirit is stirred. Paul is actually troubled. He holds sorrowful compassion for the lost. In fact, he sees all these lifeless statues and substitute religions And he is deeply troubled. These people are so brilliant, so intellectual, and yet so lost, it breaks my heart. How many of us have maybe lost our burden for the lost? Maybe we had it when we first became Christian and we wanted to share it, but but now we don't think of that much anymore. How many of us have lost it? 
remember Bishop Salmon telling a story about his wife, Louise, and he said one day Louise had been out for several hours, and she came home, and typically they would reconnect at the end of a long day and talk about their day, but, but she flitted right past him, right into the study, closed the door, and immediately got on the telephone. He said, well, that's kind of odd. And she called people for the next hour. And finally, Ed Salmon came to the door and knocked on it. Louise, is, is everything okay? She said, okay? I'm so happy, Ed. She said, I went to my favorite shoe store on King Street, and when I walked in, everything was half price. <laughs> I had such good fortune that I had to come home immediately and share the good news with all my friends. That's what I've been doing the last hour. Ed later reflected on that and thought, you know, when is the last time we were filled with a holy, joyous passion to share Jesus Christ with our culture? When's the last time we're so filled with the knowledge of the good news of God in Christ that we wanted to come home and get on the phone and tell everybody we knew about the living Lord? Paul's heart was stirred with compassion for the lost. Let's look now at Paul's manner of engaging them. First of all, let me tell you, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He believes that the gospel can stand up in the free marketplace of ideas. In fact, he believes that it is a truth that trumps all the other ideas. But doing that causes friction. There is pushback. He has hostility thrown at him. Look at verse 18. It says, Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say to us? How arrogant is that? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What does this babbler have to say to us? You know that the Greek image there is actually of a bird pecking at seeds. The idea is this guy has nothing new to say. He's taken bits and pieces of truth forms from all over and slammed them together in a hodgepodge of unintelligible philosophies. They're saying, Paul, you're a lightweight. This is philosophy 101. Paul, this is religion for dummies, my friends. So they laugh him at him, they sneer, and they mock. You know, but Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Because he has such confidence that it's the truth. He plunges right in and reasons with them in the marketplace. Now that word reason, in Greek, it's, uh, the, the root form is dialogamai. You may hear the word dialogue in there. But Paul is not like a, a, a presidential candidate who gets up on the soapbox with a teleprompter, going through all the bullet points and logically convincing us that we should vote for him or her. No, that's not the kind of dialogue we're talking about here. Paul is going to meet them where they are. He's using um, a dialogue that's called Socratic reasoning. He's using their techniques to reach them with that great compassion for the lost. He begins to ask questions of them, to authentically listen to, to where their, their premises are and how they got to their belief system and then he shares with them what he believes about God. So Paul meets them where they are. Wouldn't it be great to have an evangelist that's, that's winsome and grace-filled and able to, to naturally listen, authentically listen, and then to share what he or she believes about God? Not preaching at you, but listening and sharing. But Paul also 
in verse 22, he kind of puffs them up a little bit. He, he kind of, he says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus that he was asked to speak in, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I see all these gods, these statues that you have. And he doesn't commend them for their doctrine. He says, I see that you're seeking. I see that you want to know more about the living God. I see that you're a very religious people. They're seekers, but he doesn't leave them there. He's got to tell them the truth. So he brings to them a greater God than they can ever imagine. Let's look at that for a moment. Um, There's an ancient writer called Petronius, and he said, It's easier to find a God than it is to find a man in Athens. In other words, they got more statues than they got people, okay? So they're surrounded by this. And if you've read anything of the Greek and Roman gods, you know this, that they're temperamental, they're prickly, they get out of, bent out of shape with the, the slightest bit of human vices, they fight one another, they get angry, and they demand appeasement from their subjects. These gods really are, in the end, a projection, a projection of the worst of human beings, these gods are. See, you didn't go to the Greek and Roman gods because you were drawn by their beauty, by their absolute goodness and purity and holiness. They didn't want that anyway. They wanted to be feared and appeased. So Paul notices there's this unknown God, and the idea was that if we have a God that we've left out of this pantheon, we better make one more statue and, and to appease the gods, if we've overlooked anybody, this will be our insurance policy. And so in verse 23, Paul takes up on that. Once again, meeting them where they are, Paul says, you know that statue to the unknown God that y'all have created? I know that God. Let me tell you more about that God. Let me share with you about the God you've not identified yet. And what does he do? He gives them a God that would appeal to their intellect. Look at verse 24. My God is the one who made heavens and earth and everything that's in it. He's appealing to their mind. Verse 25. My God is dependent on nothing. Nothing that human hands can bring. He doesn't need your appeasement. He is self-sufficient. He is God Almighty. Verse 25. He's the one that gives life and breath to everything on the earth. Verse 27, my God made the heavens. My God created the boundaries of the nations. My God determined the periods of human existence. He is absolutely sovereign and cosmic over everything. Let me tell you about that God you know nothing about. He appealed to their mind, but then he appealed to their heart. Look at verse 27. And yet this large, cosmic, wonderful God, he's not far from any of us. Theologians call that the transcendence of God. He's way above our minds and our thoughts, appealing to the intellect. But he's also imminent, right there with us in the person of Jesus. The logos, the word of God in the flesh. So Paul seals the deal. He uses their own Socratic arguments and quotes their philosophers and their poets. Look at verse 28. You know yourself that in God we live and move and have our being. Your folks have said that. And then he says, so you've got the mind appealed to, but then even your own poets say, for we are indeed his offspring. What a wonderful thing 
to have a transcendent God that can be near to us. We're his offspring. He's not far from us. But not only that, he doesn't want to be appeased. He wants a personal relationship with all the people of Athens. See, Paul touches the mind and the heart there. And finally, Paul seals his whole argument saying, you want to know the, the proof of why I believe this and why it's all true? He says, because God raised Jesus from the dead. Look at verse 31. God gives us the proof by raising Jesus from the dead. How do we know that Hinduism is not the truth? Because God did not raise Jesus from the dead. How do we know that Buddhism is not the truth? Because God did not raise a Buddhist from the dead. We know that God's vindication of all that the gospel proclaims is true comes by the way of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus on the third day. Paul points to the resurrection because, because things aren't supposed to work that way. Dead people stay dead, but God raised him from the dead. Contrary to any earthly wisdom, God raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul's basically saying, if God did that, then Jesus is the truth, not just for me, not just for you, but for the people of Athens and every culture and every person that's ever lived. Not just true for me, true for everyone in Christ Jesus. And so today, Paul brings us into that message. And I would just like to say, if we're going to be the culture, or we're going to be the church, then we're to engage the culture with the truth of Jesus. Now, granted, Paul was not very successful, but let me tell you, he wasn't called to produce the fruit. He's called to spread the seed. So remember that. Don't judge your evangelism by how many souls you've saved, because as Paul himself said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The growth is God's, folks. We're called to engage the culture, not to be entrenched, but to go out into the marketplace and share the saving message of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So go, engage the world with the truth of Jesus. Amen.